Welcome to Talk is Jericho's The Pot of Thunder and Rock and Roll. I am fresh off the Jericho Cruise. The third time's a charm. Uh, probably the best one we've done so far. We had a blast on the bo- boat. If you joined us, you know. If you weren't able to uh, come on the next one, uh, it's vacation of a lifetime. The Four Leaf Clover is leaving March 14th to the 18th, 2022. So only about five months from now, we're going back to Nassau from Miami. Go to ChrisJerichoCruise.com to uh, find out all the information. Do not miss out. I'm probably going to do a special episode of Talks Jericho discussing the uh, the third Jericho Cruise, the triple whammy. It was so much fun. You can still hear my throat is still scratchy from all the stuff that I did. And I know everybody that came on board said it was the best vacation they've ever had. And that's all I needed to hear. So... Speaking of vacation, we are not taking a vacation. We go to Europe. We're coming to rock and roll for all of you for the first time in two or three, three years, I think it is. Starting November 29th in Liverpool, the famous Cavern Club Fozzie returns for the Save the World Tour. There's only a handful of tickets left for the for that show. Manchester is sold out. December 1st, Newcastle, still tickets available for the Riverside. Glasgow sold out. Dublin sold out. Belfast in Northern Ireland at Limelight. One still has a few tickets left. Chester is sold out. Birmingham at the Mill still has tickets. Bournemouth at the Old Fire Station still has tickets. Swansea sold out. Nottingham sold out. London sold out. So go to FozzyRock.com and get tickets for those remaining shows and get your VIP meet and greet. We play a uh, mini set of five songs that you're not going to hear later on that evening, some of them at least. And uh, we meet you, we greet you, we hang out. It's a grand old time. So go to FozzyRock.com for all that information. All right, today, Scott Norton makes his talk as Jericho debut. Scott had an incredible career at New Japan Pro Wrestling. He was also one of the only wrestlers to be in both NWO Japan and NWO in the United States. He's a highly decorated arm wrestling champion as well. We're talking about all of that. We're going to hear the story about how he ended up wrestling in North Korea as part of the collision in Korea in 1995 pay-per-view, which was jointly produced by New Japan WCW. Two nights of wrestling at Pyongyang's Mayday Stadium. Uh, about 350,000 North uh, Korean citizens filled the stadium over two nights, making a collision in Korea the largest attendance ever for a wrestling show uh, the main event of one of those shows was Norton versus Shinya Hashimoto for the IWGP Heavyweight Championship. We're going to hear all about that and all about the crazy stories they went through. We heard about it on Dark Side of the Ring, but Scott's going to tell you all about it from a first point uh, pr- perspective. Uh, he's got some pretty incredible and terrifying details from his crypt, uh, trip to North Korea, from the time he found out he was going to his r- arrival in the country, what happened after that leading up to the show. Not going to say anything else. you got to listen to Scott Norton. Starting now on Talk is Jericho. Well, that's the thing, Scott. We'll just get right into it. It's doing the the narration for the dark side of the ring. And I I saw you on the show and I was like, man, I haven't talked to Norton in so long. So much experiences that we had together and so many experiences that you had. And it's just like (laughs) lots of stuff to, to talk about and have fun with, man. Yeah, we'll do it. Let's go for it. Did you get a lot of feedback from people uh, from Dark Side of the Ring? No, well, just that uh, when I did the Dark Side, you know, I did all my couple, three hours of interviewing about North Korea. And then the last thing they asked me about was what happened to Hawk and Scorpio. I just wished it would have never came out, you know, because a lot of that didn't happen. Gotcha. But, but, but the point is, I'm sure a lot of people were excited to see you again after not seeing you on screen for so long. That was awesome. Yeah, I got a great feedback on it. Super great. And I mean, the show's great. You know, I just, 
what happened in North Korea compared to what with you know, it was way worse. It was, I mean, I honestly never been that scared in my life as far as, as it, you know, day by day. Third day, I, I was absolutely petrified when they took me by gunpoint, basically interrogated me for about three hours. Well, let's talk a little bit about this. So you guys went to North Korea for people that haven't seen the show and we'll, we'll do our own version of it for briefly. You went to do a show in North Korea in front of 150,000 people or whatever it was. But when you got there, it's still North Korea. It's basically a communist country. Yeah. You see, the thing about when I found out I was going to North Korea, I'm in the locker room with me, Chono, Masa, you know, Chris Benoit was there. Uh, all the boys, you know, and Hattori came up to Masa, then Masa came up to me and says, Scott, you booked North Korea, and I'm going, what? You know, yeah, you booked North Korea. Everybody booked North Korea. And all of a sudden, the locker room just went dead silent. And I look at the Japanese boys, you know, and you know all of them, and uh, they're all huddled up, and they're going, oh, my God, you know, so I'm going like, you know, I was going, I was a crazy man back then. I mean, I was just, Going 100 miles an hour, my hair on fire. I mean, I really didn't <laughs> stop. And, you know, I see CNN was on in our hotel rooms all the time, but I didn't pay attention to it. You know what I mean? Right. Anyways, uh, I go to Chona. I said, Chona, man, what's the matter? He says, We don't think we come home to North Korea. This, this may be bad. They hate us. And, you know, I, so I talked to Moss and I talked to Victoria. I said, You know, is this going to be safe for us to go? Yeah, no worries. And then we found out Muhammad Ali was going to be there with Anoki. And that was enough firepower for me, mm-hmm. you know, because I started, you know, getting a little, you know, asking questions. And I'm going, yeah, God. But when we got there, they thought we were like the Vikings coming in, whatever they call it when they ambushed. Rape them. and pillage. Pillage, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they thought we were just, they looked at us like we were killers. I mean, and nobody smiled, and it was just, it was it was horrible to see people live under them conditions. And what I mean, if you were in the military, you're a normal person. If you weren't, you're wearing these big, baggy clothes. Everybody wore the same thing, and you weighed about 60 pounds. And I'm not kidding you. Hmm. Their faces were all sunk in, their eyes were all sunk in. It was just terrible. And, you know, they looked at us like, this monsters, and I've learned after that four days. The very next day in that stadium, we're the first venue, or that was the first. That stadium was brand new. Mm. The next day, they had public executions in there. Oh my gosh! Yeah, and I've learned this from a guy that's doing a Netflix thing from Europe, and this guy is just—I mean, he's studying it. I mean, it's more of a you know, an educational thing with this one, you know, shock value deal. And he's told me things that, you know, they use our pictures still, propaganda. You know, I mean, it just, it was crazy, you know. And what happened with that Daniel Warmbier, he took a poster off the wall and he got basically, you know, tortured and killed. Oh, wow. I mean, what I did, you know, by, they were, they were listening to my phone, you know, because we all were trying to call home for a few days, right? And that's how this started out with me. I'm trying to call my wife. I just got married. 
And we had, the elevators weren't working. They turned them off. So we had to run seven floors every time we left the hotel. Down the stairs. It was crazy. You know, we're big guys. I mean, you'd have been fine, but me, man, it's a little bit. <laughs> but, but anyways, Chris Benoit went through this too, brother. He's trying to call home too. You know, and so when you went down, you went downstairs in the basement, you got the operator, they would connect you. Hmm. And now here's the race up the stairs. I would hear my phone ringing down the hall by the time I got to it. Silence. Hmm. This went on two days. Finally, I kind of lost a little bit. I'm just getting pissed, you know. So I finally, they let me get through. And it was by the grace of God, I'm telling you. And so anyways, I'm on the phone and I start talking to Cammy. She just starts browbeating the hell out of me. She thought I was all partying. <laughs> I mean, she's just going off. I says, Tammy, you don't understand. Slow and settle. Right. And she's just going and going. And you can't, you ain't got time to. I said, Tammy, I said, and I just said it. I said, you're a kind of shithole I'm in here. Next thing you know, the phone goes click. Hmm. And I thought she hung up on me. I fired the phone down on the bed because these these big, well, you weren't, I'm sorry. But these big giant canopy beds were just the biggest pain in the ass you ever could imagine. This hotel, nobody's in there for years. I'm talking decades. So anyways, I'm sitting there and I'm going, I cannot believe everything I've tried to do to get in touch with my wife. She she hung up on me. And it was like $17 a minute. So anyways, I get a, a huge knock on my door. I open the door and I'm ready to kill somebody. Here it's four guards with weapons and this guy in a suit. And he starts questioning me. And I'm going, you know, and I said, I got in an argument with my wife. I mean, what are you talking about? I said, you're bugging my phone and everything? We don't argue with our wives here. And they took me away. And they walked me down the stairs. And we walked right past where we were making the phone calls. And we went under, like, this hallway is long ways. And then I go in this room. And I'm in this small room. Now I'm sweating bullets. I got guards, and, you know, they're looking at me like I'm just disgusted. They, they just put a bowl in my head. They'd have been fine. And they started bringing in these different military people, you know. And the last guy to come in, he was in the another end of the room. And he's looking back at me like, I'm going, God damn, they're kill me. I mean, I'm freaking. I mean, I'm, I was wearing a tank top and a pair of Zubas, and I was sweating bullets. I mean, I was soaked. And they come over, and they and they start just browbeating me, man. We're going back and forth, and I'm just going, man, whatever you want. This is how we do it in America. I'm in your country. Whatever, please. You know, I mean, they don't even know I'm there, basically. And I talk, I don't know if I taught my way out of it. But he, he says, go back to room. And I said, how do I get back to the damn thing? I didn't cuss him. <laughs> I mean, I was about as nice as I could ever possibly be in my life. And they bring me back. And then they brought me up the elevator. Uh-huh. Yeah. Because they didn't want nobody to see this. And also, like, I'm walking out of the elevator. I go back to my room and I sit down and I go, oh, my God. Hawk's room is right next to mine. So I go to Hawk on Hawk, knock on Hawk's door. And I said, Mike, you ain't believe what just happened. He said, what was that big commotion? What were they saying? 
And I said, man, they just came and got me. I got that. I finally got through calling all these. I told you that you shouldn't even try. Just call over to get back to Japan. I said, hey, my pet brother. And we're going, I'm telling what happened. Then all of a sudden, Tori found out about it. Now, here comes the Tory. He's out knocking on my door when I'm in Hawk's room. Tori, you know, and all of a sudden, he comes, what are you doing? I said, and I told him what happened. I said, it's a conversation. You can't be arguing too much. I said, I've been trying to call her for three days. And all. So anyways, it was just like, now I'm under Masa, squashed that. He squashed everything. Well, let's talk about the actual event at the stadium in uh, Pyongyang in North Korea, and we'll pick up the story. But first, I want to share something I just realized about New Wave Flow State Coffee. The lettering on their bags of coffee is the same as the Cow Palace in San Francisco. Who would know that? That's New Wave founder Greg Fontiero tipping his hat to the wrestling business. Greg wrestles on the indie scene, trained with my former tag partner, Lance Storm. And in between wrestling school and indie shows, he was building his company, New Wave, and creating his first product, Flow State Coffee, which is amazing. Uh, It's delicious. He even sent me a New Wave coffee mug to use. Flow State Coffee has the added health benefits of boosting your brain function and focus, stimulating your creativity, and reducing your anxiety. Now, I know you're thinking, give me a break. It's just coffee. It's really not. Greg has spent 10 years working on this. He's come up with a game changer. Flow State Coffee gives you the clean caffeine boost without the jitters or the crash. Here's his secret, L-theanine and raw cacao. L-theanine is a green tea amino acid extract that relaxes you without making you sleepy. And the raw cacao is an all-natural antidepressant, boosts your mood, helps alleviate stress, and it just tastes great. You put all that together, you get the caffeine high with improved focus and less of the jitters and anxiety that come with too much coffee. Start your mornings with Flow State Coffee. I know you're going to love it. And that's why Greg and New Wave are offering you guys 10% off your first purchase. When you go to newwave.co, use the promo code Jericho. That's N-O-O-Wave.co and use the promo code Jericho to get 10% off your first purchase. Go to newwave.co now and start unlocking your best work with Flow State Coffee. All right, Scott, let's talk about the actual event itself in North Korea. Two shows at the stadium in Pyongyang. Here's situations leading up to it. We're in this big, huge arena, and, and they're doing all these events and everything. They're trying to put us out in front of the people so they can, you know, we're going and putting flowers on these people's everything. When they wanted to do something with you, they wanted your attention. They didn't say, hey, excuse me, or hey, Scott, or nothing like that. They just grabbed and started walking. Hmm. Back then, that just didn't work for me, you know? So the guy grabbed me by my arm and he pulled on me and I pulled my arm back and he grabbed it again and I flinged him about five feet. And all of a sudden then he came up and you know and I'm about ready to snap, you know. I mean, and Masa come around over, you can't do that, you've got to slurp. You know, probably should get through this next four days and all this, you know, and I'm saying, Yeah, I'm trying Masa, but this is crazy. And you know, they did not want us there, they hated us. I mean, they're bringing us out in these in the stadium, and then they march all these nuclear weapons past us, the military. Wow. People are looking at us like, that's for you, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the plan, you know, we're going we're to take the United States out, man. I mean, they, and, you know, and they hated the Japanese people just as much, you know. There was one time out of the whole time there, me and Flair were going to the first show on the third night. 
This is the day that all that crap happened. Now I gotta go wrestling main event against Hashimoto. We're driving and these these roads are eight lanes wide. I'm going, why the heck? I haven't seen a car since I've been here unless it was the ones that are transporting us back and forth. There's no vehicles in this country. And what we found out is they they use them as air bases for war. They feel that there's going to, you know, they're going to be going to war. Hmm. So we're driving and, and I'm sitting with Flair and Flair was scared to death. I mean, what they did to Rick was crazy because he was doing all the propaganda stuff. They're trying to get him to turn on the United States. Wow. They were all over Rick. But anyways, I said, Rick, this is unbelievable. I said, look at the crowd we're drawing. And the driver goes, excuse me, can I say something? And I said, you speak English? Yes. And all of a sudden, I said, he goes, what do you mean by draw? And I said, well, well we're drawing a really huge crowd today. This is going to be really good. He says, you not draw nothing. He says, forced attendance. If they don't show up, they got a bull in the head. What? <laughs> yeah, I swear to God. And I mean, was this serious? And, and Flair, you know how Rick is. Rick's, he's just going, Oh my God. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was it was just insane, you know. I mean, and then, you know, like we did all these little events and everything, and it was all set up to make us look bad, then look good, like we're worshiping them, you know. I mean, it was just and then one day when we went up this temple, I mean, this walk here would have got anybody. I mean, it was three quarters of a mile up straight up these big marble giant stairs and it was unbelievable you know Muhammad Ali's walking along he's got his little entourage of people that take care of him and you know it's all the boys and we're all with all the military we're all going up this staircase and uh, Ali started popping you know moving better next thing he pops his jacket off it was just a, a big he wore a black suit black slacks little black tie with a white shirt. And all of a sudden, he took his jacket off. He flipped to his uh, guy, and then he took his tie off, and, and he started jogging up the stairs. Hmm. And I'm going, look at this. You know, and it was me, Scott Steiner, and Rick, and Hawk, all walking together, and all of a sudden, we started going quicker. And I remember this was funny as hell. Steiner, you know, because now we're picking the pace up. And Scotty's walking next to me, and Hawk's here, and Rick's over there. And Scotty goes, hey, Norwich, he says, carry me, would you? And I said, I've been carried for the last four years. I said, You're <laughs> he goes, that's a good one. I'm going to get you for that. He, now me and Scotty are going back and forth up the stairs. But as soon as we got up the stairs, you know, we started, we're kind of running, you know, because we want to see what the hell's going on up there. And here's Muhammad Ali's shadow box. And it was unbelievable. It's like the top of the world. It was like, it was just incredible. And, and he's moving around like in his, in his heyday, you know, I, it's us. And we watched that and I just was like, this is the most unbelievable thing I've ever seen. But then as he's exercising, he's working out, he probably did it for four or five minutes. And all of a sudden you could see him. It's coming back. And all of a sudden he's like this. And all of a sudden they had towels, they wiped him down. They got them all dressed back up. And I talked to his, uh, I cannot remember the guy's name. It's been so many years. And he says, when he pulls out of it, he works out. He loves, you know, he misses boxing so much. 
And I said, how often does that happen? He's not a lot. He said, you're very fortunate to see this day. And it was one of the biggest things I've ever witnessed. Because he had Parkinson's so bad at that point. Yeah, he did. It was it was sad. He, I mean, but he was a, a, a unbelievable individual. I mean, still wanted to make you laugh, make you have fun. You know, he did something in the airport when we're waiting for uh, a flight. All the boys, it was the hottest day in history of Japan. It must have been 110 degrees, and we're all supposed to wear all these suits and ties and all this. And we, it was just horrifying. But anyways, we're all huddled around waiting to get on this plane. And all of a sudden, you hear this huge commotion off in the distance of Ali coming. And he's feeling better. He's having a day. You know, I, because I, he did something was unbelievable because he's coming in and he's going, I want you. And everybody's looking back like, who's he talking to? <laughs> and it was me. <laughs> he came right up to me. And he gets and, he, and he's poking me in the chest, and all of a sudden we did the, and the camera just went, it was crazy. Then mm-hmm. all of a sudden he kind of, then all of a sudden he pulled the plastic thumb out. He started doing magic tricks, and everybody knew, you know, but he just made people smile, just like you just right there. It made him the happiest man on earth. It just it just you loved it, and then once we got on the flight. Me and Hawk were sitting together, and it was uh, Ollie right in front of Hawk. And he, Ollie loved Hawk's inner. He knew Hawk from the wrestling, you know. And, you know, he loved it when he say, well, Mike, well. And <laughs> he, he would laugh. <laughs> so he told him a story about uh, Terry Funk's pig. You've heard the story, I'm sure. I don't think so. Oh, God, it's hilarious. And the way Hawk does it, you know, he, he does the voice. Terry Funk, he, he told he told Ollie that story ten times. Then he broke it, you know, he picked the newspaper up and started doing Walter Cronkite to him and all <laughs> It was it was, you know, those parts of the trip were just, you know, anything to do what he was part of, we were okay. It was fun as hell. The rest of it, you can keep it. Food, everything. Let's talk about how you started wrestling in the first place in Japan. Before we do, a quick word from Wondery about one of their latest podcasts. In a political climate where polarization is off the charts, finding common ground can often feel impossible. Uncommon Ground with Van Jones is a new weekly podcast where Van and his guests explore solutions to the biggest issues of our time, from climate change to racial inequality to the state of our democracy. Stick around to the end of this episode to hear a preview of Uncommon Ground with Van Jones. Well, you mentioned that you went over there as part of New Japan, and you were a, a really big name in New Japan for many, many, many years. How did you end up going over there in the first place? Is that from the Minneapolis connection? Well, no. You see, what happened is uh, all the guys went right into the business. And to be honest with you, I didn't have the confidence to do it. I didn't, I, I didn't like big crowds. I just didn't. I wasn't comfortable being a pro wrestler. I wasn't even thinking about it. It wasn't even on my radar. It was just something I was knew I probably could do, you know, because I was an athletic guy, I was a big, strong man. But it's something that just kind of frightened me a little. Not frightened, but I just wasn't comfortable with. And when I stuck my arm wrestling career led me to pro wrestling in Japan. So, anyways, Hawk, 
he used to go crazy. You know, he wanted me in the business so bad, it was unbelievable. You know, we're best buddies, and he just would go nuts. He said, you got to do this. No, he said, you can do it. And I said, man, I might just say doing that. And he finally got tired of doing it, you know. So anyways, when over the top, the big, biggest arm tournament still today was put together, they sent me to Japan before the tournament to promote the movie and promote the, the arm wrestling. So they had a big tournament in Japan. I went over as one of the arm wrestlers and, you know, so on and so forth. Remember uh, Peter, uh, the referee, Peter Yamaguchi, no, Peter Tuck. I don't remember his last name, but I know who you're talking about. Yeah, so anyways, I'm at this arm wrestling tournament and the people, they already knew because Hawk always talked and always put me over every time he turned around. And so they knew who I was kind of in Japan by the magazine. Maybe, I don't know. And then, you know, the villain of one of the best arm wrestlers in the world and everything, you know, I'm going against Cleveland and all that stuff. He approached me. He said, you should think about pro wrestling in New Japan. And I said, well, you know, I'm not really, it's not that big of a deal to me. You know, I mean, it's someone, you know, I was honored. I mean, I was like flabbergasted. So then, you know, Cleve Dean was the guy that nobody's ever beat. He was six foot ten, six hundred fifty pound guy, and he he crushed me the first time I wrestled. And you know, it kept getting closer and closer and closer. And then I put together like a madman. I went nuts in the gym for two years. I took a time off from it. Just you know, I concentrated in this tournament over the top, and him. So I ended up just completely obliterating them in tournament. It was unbelievable. And so when I, I went back to Japan, because I traveled with the movie, everywhere the movie went, I would be there. So I'm in Japan. Now they come with a serious offer. They said, you know, you, you need to think about this. And I'm going, you know, I, you know I'm, I'm going to need you know, consider this. And so anyways, you know, we just couldn't pick up the cell phone back then and call your buddy up or whatever. So I call Hawk up through the channel phone thing. I got back to the States and I said, hey, Hawk, I said, is New Japan a good company? Pro wrestling New Japan, Japan? I said, yeah. He said, they're great. He says, you don't. I said, well, they offered me a contract. He says, you don't take it, I'll kill you. <laughs> so I took it. They sent me to Brad Ragged's camp. You know, I had a hell of a run there for a long time and Masa, you know, was just, the greatest guy to work for him. I, you know, never any animosity. He and I never any behind the back stuff. No, I was a lucky guy. You know, I mean, and that and it worked for me, Chris, because you know, I mean, like night shows and the big shows were, were easy to do. You know, working in front of big crowds eventually was was very easy to do. But in Japan, I was so much more comfortable because it was. I just, I mean, it fit like a glove, you know, I was made for that, you know, and I mean, it's not for, it was a hard time, but not for a long time. I mean, I, I did about 18 years hard there and, you know, I had a mentality, uh, started late, very fortunate guy to get, you know, I came in right behind Vader. I was the guy they were grooming right behind who I consider one of the best big men of all time. Right. Sure. And, uh, you know, they opened the door for me and I wasn't going to miss a match. And I worked through stuff that I shouldn't have never done. So I never put myself, my wife through it, me through it. 
I mean, I'm broke down because of it. I mean, I'm getting way, I'm halfway there right now. I mean, uh, got both knees in place and it's amazing. I've had knee pain since last year, you know, a year and a half now. Never. It's unbelievable. You know, now I need to get the shoulders worked on and, you know, neck just like everybody else. I'm sure you got some struggles you're going through too. But, you know, I just did something to myself. You know, I wasn't going to miss a match, and I, I worked through some stuff that was – it was crazy. It's interesting, too, because the style of New Japan was so much different in the 90s in that, like you mentioned, you were perfect. You were, like, tailor-made for New Japan at that time frame. Just a big, blocky, giant, strong guy with the, the legit sports credibility of arm wrestling and just having that. Uh, but, but when you're talking about working with Hashimoto and working with – you know, all the guys, Chono, the, the, everyone was big back then, like you. Yeah, well, people that are always talking, they, they come up to you and they say, God, you know, AJ Styles, how could he be the world champ? I said, you ever watch a match of this guy? I mean, how could he be a world champ? How could he be? Right. You know, I mean, they go by size. In, in Japan, it was always, you got this big ace, or the apes, you know. And I, I've been a little... And, you know, I was brought back at the Tokyo Dome and Omega went at it with this, I can't remember his name offhand. And I'm just going, we couldn't do that. We, I, I mean, I had crowds on the end of their seats just going, pounding their brains out, going nuts, how we did our style. But everything changes and evolves. And, I mean, these guys are phenomenal. And you're one of them. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because you can, you see, that's the thing about what they don't get. <laughs> this is nuts. Do you remember wrestling in a tag match against me in Cincinnati in a hockey arena? I don't. Tell me the story. Oh, oh shit. This is <laughs> We're working a tag, and I, I can't remember who my partner was. They had it all set up, and we, you know, the NWO did a run in at the end, you know. And they're, you know, we're supposed to slide out and just let them. Thank you, you know, each So, anyways, I noticed you're standing there, and I said, "Well, he should, I should get him out of that ring because they're just, you know, I didn't like that running stuff. I really didn't. Yeah. So I had you by the boot, and I pulled you down, and I blistered you with a chop. <laughs> blistered your ass, and I kind of backed away real quick, and I was like getting to the entrance, going up the little ramp. And so it was me and Buff. That's who it was. It was me. That's what we're doing. Vicious and delicious. That's right. So, anyways, I get to the <laughs> I get to the, the the curtain, and I get right through the curtain. You got to remember this, Chris, because you reached in the curtain, you pulled me back out, <laughs> and turned me around, and you blistered the <laughs> daylight. Don't you remember that? I do remember it now. I remember it now. This guy here, man. I said, you know, because. I knew you had this hockey background, and you, you know you were a you're a tough guy. You know you're you didn't you know Hashimoto bring out the kicks out there. You, you know, do it, and you know they don't understand that. You know they got you know when they say things like you know what they've said. You know, but anyways, I'll never forget that. All right, I got a story of my own from when you and I were in Japan at the same time. Before I tell my story, October is Fire Prevention Month. And did you know that a fire department responds to a fire every 24 seconds? Both are statements of fact. 
And that's why Talk is Jericho has teamed up with First Alert, the most trusted brand in fire safety, to help you protect your whole home with safety you can trust. Having enough First Alert smoke and carbon monoxide alarms is one of the best things you can do for your home and family. Install them on every level and every bedroom of your house to help keep your family safe. You also have to remember to test them regularly and to replace them every 10 years. They're on duty 24-7. They don't last forever. If you can't remember the last time you replaced your alarm, then you should just go ahead and replace it. It's better to be safe than sorry. Now, First Alert makes a great 10-year sealed battery alarm. They're super convenient because you don't have to worry about battery replacement for 10 years. And if you really want to protect your family, then go ahead and get fire extinguishers for every level of your house and the kitchen and make sure your family knows how to use it. And of course, plan and practice an escape room with your family so that everyone knows how to get out and where to go in the event of a fire. For more information on fire safety products, safety tips, educational activities you can do at home with your family, just go to firstalert.com slash fire prevention month. Do you remember when we were in uh, Sapporo and we were having some drinks and I had I had the Yakuniku or sorry not Yaku the uh, Yoko Yoko the Yoko. the hot uh, hot yeah. and you and you said why don't you put it in my eyes as a joke and I said okay and I put I rubbed it in your eyes I remember that <laughs> I, you know the thing about it I couldn't believe you did it <laughs> it's like hot stuff <laughs> <laughs> it was yeah but you know I should you know, I should have learned quicker about the Canadian boys. I mean, because <laughs> y'all different, man. I mean, it's just, it's, I got a huge respect for all the guys from out of Canada. <laughs> the guys are serious rivers. I mean, they didn't back out by nothing. And plus, you went through the the old ice tour. That's a crazy... Remember that? Yeah. Yeah. The uh, Did you do that too? I did. I'll tell you something. I got released by AWA, which is I wanted to be because I was a little be flared bodyguard. Then that fell through, and so now I'm a guy without a job and just started pro wrestling. And I, you know, I'm just like I didn't get it. I mean, I just I, they put they pulled me out of camp way too early. The first guy, not the first guy, like the third guy that I ever wrestled in the AWA. When I locked up with him, he went down. And he said, just pin me. I'm not going to touch you ever again. <laughs> I said, what the hell do I got to do to get a match on around here? You know? <laughs> so anyways, I get a call from that Tony guy, Tony Candelo, right? Yeah. And uh, he says, I'd love to work, you know, usually. Uh, he just, he painted a picture where we're staying in hotels every night. It's Polo Park in and just all this great stuff. Then the last thing he said to me, he said, make sure you bring a sleeping bag. And I said, what? And he hung the phone. <laughs> So I get there, and he was serious about the sleeping bag, you know, and you know what I'm talking about. But I learned a lot there because it was Pitbull Brown, right? Yeah, Gary Brown. What a re- I wrestled him every night. And he says, by the end of this, he says, you're not going to be green no more. And I thought if I got made it through this hell tour, I wouldn't be green. But he was, he taught me a lot. It was it was good I went, but uh, I think Tony Kendall is the only guy that I ever really wanted to end his life. <laughs> <laughs> I want I, I I was ready to kill that man. And then when he stiffed me on my pay, he was cutting this old lady's hair, older woman's hair. And I come barnstorming into his his shop and he knew that I was coming for the money, you know. He just turned around, opened up the cash with that envelope and handed 
Being a single word, I just went, oh, what's this guy trying to get away with? <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, you Canadian boys, uh, you, you, know, you didn't back down. It was, you, you got the respect of this. Here's a story for you. When I was, uh, even before I was in the business, I used to set up the rings in Winnipeg. I know. Yeah, Valhalla, Minnesota, or something like that. You were at a you you. I went to a show, and you were there. And I, I remember, oh, it's Scott Norton from Over the Top, the movie, the the the, the rest, arm wrestling guy. And you taught me a trick about arm wrestling that I still use to this day. I call it the Scott Norton arm wrestling trick, where if you if if you cock your wrist, you can always get the upper hand on the guy. And I use that to this day. You were arm for about two freaking hours. Remember? Yeah. <laughs> You kept bugging me. I'm going, dude, I'll kill you. I mean, I'll rip your freaking, I mean, you don't want none of this. And, that, and that's when I was taking with John Nord. We're the lumberjacks. Right. Just tear his arm off, Nord. So I said, well, I got to tear <laughs> I was 18. Totally, yeah, I know. You, and you're just like a mosquito when you got one in your car and you're on a trip and you can't get them. And all of a sudden you wake up the next morning, you got seven mosquito bites on your leg. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, finally I said, "Come here!" And I, oh. and you're you're cool as hell. You're you know, and you could tell that you wanted to. Oh yeah, I was looking for it, right? Put a little back pressure, do the over top move right here like that. And you went on to beat big guys in bars and stuff, right? <laughs> I did. Yeah, I did. It's amazing what you you know if you can learn it. Arm wrestling just is a brute strength. It's the strongest guy that's got knows when to put the technique into work at the right proper time and uh, you know i wish i'd have never left arm wrestling if it was like it is today i still train like an arm wrestler when i train my upper body i can't do shoulders and chest and back too much i gotta put cbd roll on to go walk i'm turning into like a cardio guy right now mm. i'm 282 pounds I made a mistake. Every time I go to a, my cardiologist once a year, when I get home, I can't answer the questions my wife's asking me. She's wait, I don't even, she's too smart for me and she asks these questions I can't answer. Right. So I brought her with me. So he could just say, you know, directly tell her, <laughs> well, he could be a little bit more active. So now, ever since then, I'm on a grain-free diet. Plant proteins. I mean, I'm eating perfect. And now I'm a cardio guy. I mean, every night about, I walk 4.6 miles. People think I'm trying to catch her and molest her or something. Because, I mean, we're out there, brother. <laughs> and, uh, no, it's, I'm trying to get to 275. Hmm. I'm, I can't break the 282 mark. I started this about 330, 325. I feel great. But no, I still train as an arm wrestler. It's a blast. They get they have the equipment now. If I had that equipment back in the day, they'd arrest me. Seriously. I was strong, I was good, but this stuff here, it's amazing. Let's talk about your arm wrestling career, Scott, all the success you've had. But first, how do you banish high rates of car insurance? I'm gonna tell you. You switched to Geico during Geico Ween. <laughs> October is Geico's favorite time of the year, and Geico has been working even harder to cast out high rates on car insurance and craft just the right coverage for you and your family. But here's the thing you might not know about Geico. 
They could also help you uncover more savings when you build the other things parked in your driveway, like your beloved motorcycle, boat, even your home away from home, your RV. Michael Sweet from Striper, who is on the Jericho Cruise, currently living in an RV. Geico could even help you save on homeowners and renters insurance as well. So visit geico.com today and you'll see firsthand that switching your insurance coverage doesn't have to be scary. Only thing that will haunt your nightmares is seeing just how much you could have saved if you had switched sooner. Geico. 15 minutes can save you 15% or more on car insurance. And happy Geico Ween. Happy, happy Geico Ween. Geico Ween. Geico Ween. Happy, happy Geico Ween. Oh, 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 oh. So what's what's the secret, like, being, a, you know, such a, a decorated arm wrestling champ? Is there a certain strategy to it, or or is it more intimidation? Or I was just that, but I was... Uh... I was lightning quick, lightning quick. And, and I could work up on, put it this way, if I'd have been a sprinter or a defensive lineman, I'd have the first, best first step in the NFL and in, in the Olympics. Honest. I mean, I could just, with the arm wrestle, I could explode better than anybody I've, you know, <clears throat> seen. And then plus I could back it up with it a lot of strength and I stayed high on the table. So I was always in a, in a, a powerful move where everybody else folds back away from the table and they get out here. I, you stayed, I made you stay with me. You know what I mean? And if you're going to beat me, you got first, you got to stop that explosion. Then you got to be stronger enough. And Cleve was that guy. You know, I mean, I've been beat eight, nine times, but you know, top guys. But that's grown starting up. The last three, four years, nobody's close. I mean, Johnny Brzezink, a guy. Now, this is, this is, you know, like going back with yourself and AJ Styles, Kenny Omega, these guys that have taken over the super heavyweight scene basically in our, in Japan. You know what I mean? Seriously. Right. We got a guy named Johnny Brzezink. Johnny goes about 230 and is the greatest arm wrestler that ever lived. Wow. And I mean, and I'm glad to say that I'm three and all against him and just crushed him. <laughs> but he'd have figured it out. No, sir, that good. I mean, and the thing about it is, he worked for Western Airlines. This is how old he is. Back in the day, was when there was Western Airlines, he could go anywhere in the world for free. He was a uh, mechanic for the jet airplane engines, and uh, and he did. Every top of Russia, he went there. Every country that there was a, a super strong dude, he flew there, did super matches with him, either one lost, whatever. I mean, this dude was a, a monster on the table. But, uh, Chris, once you start getting a little older, you kind of forget. <laughs> talking about no it's good no you got it i was just i was just asking you kind of about about the technique for arm wrestling but i want to go back to i want to go back to japan too though you mentioned the super heavyweights and and the way it was then who were some of your toughest rivals that you really had the best matches with in new japan choshu hashimoto had great matches with uh uh yuji nagata chono muda of course i mean god muda was phenomenal then the, ah, for God's sake, uh, remember the big blonde hair fellow that. Fujita? Not Fujita. He was good too. But the guy that fought Don Fry. Oh, Takiyama. Takiyama. Yeah. 
Takayama was a man, and it's I'm so sad, to, you know, to where he's at right now with a you know a simple sunset flip. Yeah, he's uh, currently I think a quadriplegic at this point. Yeah, he is. Yeah, and, uh, out of all of them, him and Tenru was a tough guy too, brother. I mean, tough guy. We had some chop wars that were just, it just, I mean, but yeah, their, their mentality is they're going to die on the sword. I mean, they're going to just keep coming at you, keep coming at you. And they did that. You know, and there's some guys that, you know, I mean, I had great matches with Lager. I don't know how you couldn't. I mean, he's so freaking good. I mean, but I did, you know, I got the, I, I wrestled Lager on his birthday in his hometown. Hmm. Well, happy birthday to Juice. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because I mean, I was going over, you know, and uh, those guys, you know, they they did me so right. New Japan was such a great company. I'm not saying it's not a great company now, but when I started with New Japan, the loyalty factor was everything was on a handshake. I, I signed contracts. Don't get me wrong. But everything was, you know, a handshake, and it was that was it. And everybody that was loyal to me pretty much is out of the company or has passed on, and which is sad. But uh, back then, that was just the, we had the NWO going strong as hell over there. It was just unbelievable. It was just the greatest place to work, and I, and I was so comfortable there. You know, I mean, you you were WCW, WWF, WWE, and I mean. Those are some, it's a little bit different kind of a dogfight pony show in there, these places. You got to really, you got to really defend yourself. You really got to, you know, and it just, to me, I had my home. And I love my time in WCW. Don't get me wrong. I would have gone to WWE if a couple things ended up happen, wouldn't have happened. And, you know, and I'm glad that it, the path I took is the path I took. I mean, you can't change it now or look back. But New Japan was just perfect for me. It was just quite out. My style worked for them. Well, even being the, the, the IWGP champion, there's only been a few foreigners that have had that, and you won it twice. I mean, that's a huge deal. Yeah, you know, they they, they put me in some great spots. And, and you know, Masi used to tell me, uh, you trust me, right? And I said, of course. He says, you're going to have a great career here. Patience, please. Just give me, t-, you know, and... And, you know, I mean, I, I busted my ass to try to learn this stuff and try to be this killer they wanted me to be. And then also these guys to trust me with their bodies. You know what I'm saying? Right, exactly. After about three, four years of it, I was taking massive. I mean, they, they beat my ass, too. I mean, it wasn't just a one-way street. You know, the knuckles were hurting, but so were there. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> they just keep. You know, and it was, and I remember one day I'm sitting in the locker room and Moscow and he says, you need to learn to work now. I'm going, what the hell have I been doing for last year? <laughs> you know, I, I just loved it there. And, you know, it was, uh, it was a great place. We got to talk about the NWO, Scott, but before we start in with those stories, M1's title of Finance Super App is firmly unchallenged. They are a powerhouse of money management with unmatched automation, some of the best borrow rates on the market, tons of flexibility, and powerful tools that let you do more with every dollar. M1 cleans house among the competition. 
Hundreds of thousands of investors are ditching their brokers for the A-Show, M1 Finance. They've already got over $5 billion in assets on their platform with no signs of getting gassed. They've got a huge pop from the press as well. M1 won Best for Sophisticated Investors and Best Robo-Advisor from Investopedia, two years running, and they have over 35,000 five-star reviews on the App Store and Google Play. Think about that, 35,000 five-star reviews. Plus, get a $30 bonus to your M1 Invest account when you get approved and funded with $1,000 within your first 14 days. Terms and conditions apply. Head to m1finance.com slash Jericho to get started for free. That's M, the number one, finance.com slash Jericho. Investing involves risk. Borrowing can increase that loss and borrow rates may vary. You also mentioned too, uh, NWO Japan. You're one of the few guys that was in the NWO in the States and in NWO in Japan. Yeah, that was awesome. This is the truth. With me, Jeff Farmer, and Buck, we, we just get done doing the whole East Coast thing. We're all over the place and we're going to Japan. We flew direct out of Detroit. And I mean, I was just wiped out. We, I mean, we're on like 13 or 14 days. And uh, this is the first time we're going there at NWO, you know. And you remember when we used to come in the early 90s, there would be reporters at the airport. Yeah. And the magazines would be out. And well, that started to stop towards the end of the 90s, mid-90s. And so anyways, when we got to the airport, everywhere was black and white. NWO shirts, reporters everywhere. It was like it was like Tiger Woods coming in for the Masters or something. Just I don't know what it was. And then they they actually nobody gave us the heads up on this. They want us to speak. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. I just slept twelve hours. <laughs> you know? And uh, you know, I mean, we weren't in our NWO stuff or anything. You know, I mean, we weren't just that or anything, but. If we knew we were to be doing a, an NWO thing, we'd have been ready for it, you know. So I was, we, we did a little talk and then all this that finally get to the the, the shuttle or the bus and uh, takes to the Keo Plaza. We get off the Keo Plaza, it was solid black and white NWO shirts everywhere. I'm just going, this is crazy. I've never seen it like this before, you know. I mean. The following people with these, you know, you've seen Anoki. Yeah. Ricky Choshu, you know, the, you, they, they know the Goldberg chants here. The Choshu chants and over there were phenomenal. These guys, you know, the bus would pull up to the arenas and there'd be people all over the place. They just wanted to see it, touch or whatever. This was crazy. So the next morning, I get up, you know, and get the, the, the breakfast buffet downstairs at Keo. Man, I mean, it took me 20 minutes to get from the elevator into that restaurant. Because I was the guy that always signed, like a dumbass. <laughs> you know, I, I, I did it differently over there. I, I, you know, you know, Tiger Gents Singer with the Tiger once sword. I mean, somebody come and ask him for an autograph, he'd need him in the gut, pop him in the head, throw him within the bushes. You know what I mean? <laughs> I was always the guy that, you know, I'm going to just do it differently. I'm going to be this monster heel in the ring. I'm going to treat him okay out here. And I did that, and it worked. The monsters did crazy about it. 
But I mean, the following in Japan was crazy. So anyways, I went up to the room, got ready to go, come out of the lobby, and saw fans everywhere. They're going crazy. We walked to the bus, and here they took the bus and they put it, I don't know how many hundreds of thousand dollar paint job, they put this NW paint job on the bus, but it was unbelievable. And I mean, they changed everything for this NWO. The bus takes to the train station. We go get on the train station. Here's Chono on this big billboard with an NWO shirt on with a can of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Man, this just gets started here, you know? Mm-hmm. It was just crazy. But yeah, it went over really well. It was, it was you know, nobody understood that. And, it, and it's okay, you know, I mean, because I wrestled uh, Peter Orks. The world champion kickboxer. Yeah, 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 yeah. Peter Ortz, yeah. Yeah, and I wrestled at the Sumo Palace in 2017. I probably shouldn't have took that match. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he, you know, it was his first wrestling match, and it turned into a, a wrestler kickboxing, and I had to make him tap, basically. I always did kill me. But, anyways, the only reason I'm bringing this up is when I came out for that, you know, I was sold out 12 5 or whatever. There was a 500, maybe 700 people NWO shirts still. And then, I mean, there was a Chono impersonator guy, looked just like Chono, but just a little miniature dude. Glasses, looked just like him. He was there, but he just older, started to turn gray. And I'm just going, these people just never stop, man. They, they love How was it for you being in the NWO in the States, conversely? It kind of worked against me because every time I had to leave, they didn't use me properly and maybe they did but half the time wasn't there to be used you know what I'm saying mm-hmm. I'm not saying the only thing I was worried about but the thing I was most worried about I was always told never F up your Japan deal and I never did I mean I stayed loyal to that company and you know I never missed matches for them you know I was it was pounded in my head you're only as good as your availability. Mm. And starting late, I wasn't going to miss matches. And I didn't. Where I should have. I, you know, I should have just taken some time to, you know, heal a torn bicep up a little bit more, or tricep, or some of these things. But it just, you know, I mean, I did it as a kid. You know, my old man was a hardcore guy. I mean, not us, but I mean, he was a hard-working man. And I grew up trying to impress him through my whole life. I always wanted, you know, be like my dad. And I remember playing ball. And this is where it comes from. And uh, I dislocated my hip. At parade stadium, the big premier game of the week. Playing West High. And this they break the huddle. The guy that I played against the year before was the same year as me. He was injured. It was a guy about 270. So, you know, he's a tough, this guy was a tough hour. This guy breaks a huddle, he's 165 pounds. And I said to my center, and I'm playing those guys, I'm going to eat this guy's lunch. I'm going to kill this son of a bitch. They, they snapped the ball. I slant where I'm supposed to slant. And that little son of a gun popped me and discaved my hip. And this is even crazier. The guy's a highway patrolman, right? Yeah. Like 20 years later in Wisconsin, I get pulled over speed and I hand him my license and he's, you didn't go to Patrick Henry, did you? And I said, yeah. 
least you have no memory. I'll save you a speed ticket. But so anyways, when he popped my hip, ambulance could be the hospital. And I'm in North Moral Hospital, and they're trying to get my hip back in the joint. And uh, it just, you know, that this is the era that I grew up in, how my family was. My brothers are like this and everything. And they finally got my hip, and also just made this noise. Boom! It was, it was worse going back in than it was coming out. It, that was terrible. So anyways, uh, they told my dad, he says, he's going to have to stay in the 90s. He says, no, he's coming home with me. And they said, we strongly advise against it. She says, nope, he's coming home with me. So they said, they, they said, okay. And so anyways, I'm in a room and we're sitting there, you know, and also they came with a wheelchair and they go, he goes, what's that for? She goes, that's for your son. He goes, no, he's walking. Gotcha. And he made me walk out of there. And I was just something that always stayed here. And when I was injured, I would tell myself, He's walking. And, you know, I tried to do that. And that was something, you know, my dad passed away years ago. But that was something I used, you know, I mean, you get ready for a match with Bader or some big killer dude, you know. You, you, you go through things in your head, you know, there, especially because it's going to be a lot more of a war, you know. And you just you remind yourself, you know. Nope, I'm walking today, brother. You know, it's going to be all right. So that's just how we did it, you know. Well, that was the style, yeah. Yeah, it was, you know. And and the thing about it is, was it, that's my societal, too. I mean, we both know Masa. And, uh, yeah, I miss him. God, that was a great man. Good dude. Yeah, awesome guy. I never asked you about this before. Were you a bodyguard for Prince? Yeah. And here, here's the, the gist of it. You know, I know you got a, a musical background, and I, I learned that the first tour I was in Japan with you. First, before I answer that question, do you remember reading the Rolling Stones magazine in Japan, but the Japanese one? Yeah. I said, you can read that? And you go, not yet. That's what you told me. Not yet. But you're teaching yourself. Is it kanji? Is that what? Yeah. And I'm going, I'm walking down the, in the bus. I'm going, this guy's too smart for us. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we go in the magazine, we just go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd been there so many times before. And I used to work for Tenru over there. And I could, could never learn how to speak Japanese because it's very difficult to learn because it's different everywhere. So I thought, well, if I can read it, at least I'll be able to look at a menu or something. And so I, it was actually Katakana that I learned. Not Kanji, Katakana. Yeah. But no, that that just kind of just brought spark memory. <laughs> but so, anyways, do you remember the big blonde hair guy that used to bodyguard Prince, named Chick? Okay, yeah, for sure. He entered our arm wrestling tournament in Las Vegas World World Tournament, and his to his bad luck, he had me in the first round. He's a monster dude, man. I mean, when I saw him, I said, "I'm you know, I, I did to anybody. I mean, I'm gonna hit it with everything I got." And I, I hurt him pretty bad. Didn't break anything, but I, I ripped him up hard. So as he kind of stayed there and kind of rooted for me. And afterward, he says, uh, he asked me, I was interested in working for Prince. And I said, you know, I'm, you know, bodyguard and everything. I said, God, you know. 
and it's right for the Purple Rain deal. And this is about as much, the most I've ever talked about it, Chris. So anyways, uh, I went in for an interview. They interviewed me. He says, okay, we're going to give you a shot at this. Sent me to Denver for four days for some training. Came back, did the training. Then I went into the lawyer's office. Now, you bought a house. I bought houses numerous times. And you know the paperwork there. Yeah. Never signed more confidentially. <laughs> right. About not saying a word. So anyways, this is the truth. Now, use it as you want on this podcast. I, I'm, I'm, I, they can't. But after his death, I started talking about it a little bit, right? And I was contacted by, you know, you might want to watch what you're doing. Really? And is this, this can't be. So I talked to a lawyer friend of mine. He's, I don't think that you know, I mean, but anyways, so I did go with purple, you know, for a little bit. And I got relieved by position. Did you have interactions with Prince or was he pretty, pretty secretive? Well, yeah. This is crazy. In high school football, there's a guy named Colin Anderson played for North High. Well, Prince went to a high school, Minneapolis Henry's right here, North High's right here, separated by about two miles. He never played, but he was he was there. And everywhere he went was next to Colin Anderson. Colin Anderson was a all city or all state center, and he was a nose guard. And I was an all-state nose guard. I played center. So we battled each other all the time. And Prince remembered that. But I did, that's not why I got this position to work with him. But he knew that when I came on, he found out Scott Norris. That, you know, kind of like the highway patrol dude, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so anyways, uh, I had some, but it was just, I, I was a fish out of water the, the crew that was going and running around there with the, those fellows, I did not fit with none of them. <laughs> right. I just did. I mean, it was just like all these musicians. Who, okay, what, what's the, the, the other band, Time? Uh, what was his, that guy's name? Morris Day. the coolest guy in the world. <laughs> he, would, he would come in, you know, because Prince always had a popcorn machine with him, you know. He'd get a bag of popcorn, and, he, and he'd always bring me a bag of popcorn. He'd look like you're hungry. <laughs> and he, I, you know, and I felt really good around him. Chick was fine, you know, and the, the other bodyguards were cool, but that group of people, just I wasn't. It didn't work for me, you know. I mean, I was just, and it wouldn't have worked for me if I was working for a country band, you know. what I mean, it's just the musician scene. I was just kind of nuts, you know. I don't. I just wasn't. I got to watch this guy perform a lot in rehearsals. He was the hardest working individual I've ever seen. You remember when he did the, the Super Bowl halftime Miami? Yeah. It was raining. And they're, they're talking. They said, yeah, he won't be dancing today. And I said, believe me, this guy will not make one mistake. He works harder than anybody. He did all the dancing that day. He rehearsed. You remember the song how the how the doves fly? Yeah, when doves cry. Oh, when doves cry. Well, remember he used to do a song where you'd be sitting in a bathtub, right? Coming out of the ground, out of the stage. You ever see that? No, I didn't. <laughs> well, I told him not to use the bathtub that day. This I'm just 
clicking off big stories that happened. So, anyways, he he's prince. He's gonna do what he wants. Here comes the bathtub out of the ground. He's in the bathtub, and I, I tell you, Chris, I'm taking bumps harder getting out of bed. <laughs> that bathtub was about this high off the ground, and it just went like this. <laughs> over the side and it was like they put him on a body pose. <laughs> <laughs> so me and, me and Huck and he, Huck was his big gigantic brother and he was my partner. We made a new song. This is how the tubs fly. <laughs> and, you know, we just, I don't even remember the words. But uh, they put me on the spot. They wanted me to perform, me and Hunter sing that in front of Prince. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not good. So, I mean, I wasn't on the best of graces with them. But, you know, I mean, yeah, that's just something they didn't do. And I got released for something just totally just not. If you weren't 100,000% behind them, any negative thing at all, out the door. And, you know, it was time. It, uh, it uh, I was like a fish out of water. I mean, but it was cool. I mean, I got to see all these, you know, some concerts and stuff. And it was, I mean, it was unbelievable. I mean, it's just talented. It Last few questions for you, Scott. Um, all the matches that you've had, is there one that stands out as your favorite? Or a few of them at least? What I loved in Japan, it didn't have to be TV. It didn't have to be the Tokyo Dome. It was some of these six-man tags you could have entertaining the crowds on Sundays. Mm-hmm. 3 o'clock shows. And, you know, you got on, on the other side, you got, oh, for crying out loud, you got Kinski, Hasi, and Muda. And these guys, they're phenomenal, you know. Then we come in with me, Herc, and Samu or something. And place and you're just you're controlling these matches you know as far as like single matches and all that sure but I mean those are the funnest matches I've ever had just doing your job and and just the way that Japan was just something that just felt so good for me you know I mean I had some great matches in Nagata I had a great title match in Nagata after Nagata fought uh, the Krokob yeah Procom knocked them out. They kind of put me on remake the God of Night. And we went out there and I just said, you do it my way. Otherwise, you know, it's ain't gonna, you know, just follow me. And I hit that dude with everything. And he just made comeback after comeback. And I just and you know, we went, you know, 30-some minute long match and you know, I guess the best cop I ever got in my life is when uh, Lego was the booker. And it, this was the best match I ever had there. And I was in, in the locker room. He just came up and he, he shook my hand and he just said, perfect. And it was just, and he just kept saying it. And I'm going, you know, and I guess I did my, you know, deal. But it was a match where I was, wasn't going over. It wasn't IWG title match or it wasn't. You know, like with me and Herc did Steiner matches were freaking unbelievable. Jurassic Express, yeah. And then, then the Samoan boys, Ming, Samu, Kokina, 
I mean, huh? We had unbelievable matches, but you know, it wasn't always to you know to a TV show or to a big event. You know, and we just took it. You know, it's a it's a pride deal. You know, I mean, when you're following guys on the card, with I remember, God, I think what his name. He wrestled Benoit for the junior in the final. And a year to the date, the next year, him and Benoit were the first match. You know what I'm saying? And it, the match that they had for the finals and the juniors wasn't as good as the first one of the show. Meaning it's hard to follow these guys. You've got to go out there and just try to kill it. You know, mm-hmm. you got you got to do something, you know, and I mean. And, you know, it was just, it was an awesome deal. You know, I don't know why this popped in my head, but Black Cat used to do that a lot. Remember Black Cat, right? Oh, yeah. What a great guy. Yeah, what a great dude. But, you know, he'd be over to match a lot. And he'd come walking out, he'd be taking the tape off his wrist. He goes, follow that. I remember, I remember he wrestled Aaron Anderson in the Tokyo first match. And they didn't, they didn't, never met. They didn't get to the other locker room, nothing. Arn come walking in, he goes, what a hell of a hand. He's, you know how good Arn is, right? And this is the first match of the Tokyo Dome. And I said, well, it's all downhill from here, boys. It was just unbelievable. So, yeah, you know, that, you know, that part of the, the business, you know, when, you enjoy it, and you're having that kind of much fun, you know, doing your job, and just and you know you got this rhythm going on, and you know, and then you got all the great the referees. It just, it, it, we had just uh, it was such a different deal, you know, because we're together more. Right. The Sunday shows we usually stop had dinner, some nice steakhouse, something. It was a great, great time, man. Is that what you miss most about the business is the camaraderie? Yeah, the boys, man. I mean, both sides. Both sides of the pond. Just, you know, I've always heard, you know, these guys said, yeah, you miss, uh, miss the locker room, and I'm telling you, I do. And, you know, like today, this is awesome for me. I mean, uh, I enjoy this. I just, you know, I don't know if I get long-winded or start talking too long too much, but I mean, you know, and we had a good time. You know, the guys are great. You know, I never, I never got any beefs with the guys, or you know, I've I, always got along. Try to always try to be, you know, treat people the way you want to be treated. You know, it's, and it's a doggy dog business, man. And it's it's tough business, you know. I, I mean, but I miss that part of the deal. You know, we had a great time on the road. Had a great time. You know, in Japan, it was different, but it was this is a I mean, and it's something that when I get out and do these signings and I get in front of some of the guys I've seen for years, and you know, it's just awesome. And it's important, you know, it's important to stay a little active in this. You know, I mean, hell, my knees are good, they've never been this good in the business. <laughs> And I'm serious. I mean, they're just amazing. And I'm trying to strengthen them and do all the right stuff. I get these shoulders fixed. You know, they keep asking to come back to Japan. Hmm. You know, these, like a legends match. And, you know, and then you, 
you get in there with a couple of guys, you know, that are just, and I want to go back and do it, you know, but I mean, I don't think, I don't know if I could survive the match against Cammy to get over there to do that. <laughs> Couldn't survive the match against your wife, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Scott, it's been great talking to you, man, and great, re- great reconnecting with you. And, uh, there's plenty of, of things that I'm sure we'll be able to see each other again when we can get back on the road for sure. Yeah, yeah, everything's gonna get back to normal. Everybody's gonna start traveling again, put this behind us. And I, you know, I do miss it. I, I did a sign in, uh, I've done one thing basically in New York and it was great. You know, I did four events within two minutes of the airport and the hotel was just unreal. And I said, God, it's never been like this before. You know, but I mean, it's been over a year. Yeah. I know you're still pretty, you're staying as busy as you can, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's not been so bad for us. Yeah, so that's good. And, uh, but that's, it'll get back there, brother. Well, dude, it's great seeing you, man. Hey, right back at you, brother.